The following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcast Network. For advertising information or to find more great podcasts, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com and follow us on Twitter at RealTheUnderdog. Three, two, one. Welcome to another episode of Create Your Shot. I am Tyler Laurie and I am joined as always by my co-host in the city of brotherly love, Chris Smalls Angelos. Smalls, how are you on this fine Thursday night? I'm doing great. You know, good week. Can't complain. Got no complaints. No complaints at all, huh? I mean, the Jefferson Rams are just rolling right now. 12th in the country. Big win over Sciences. Three-game homestand. You go 3-0. and I watched a couple of them on your, on your live stream, which is great, by the way. Great live stream. Hey, I'm just waiting. I'm on worried about is uh, Big Red here at the Super Bowl, hopefully bringing one home. I'm rooting for Andy and I'm rooting for Mahomes. Yeah, we talked about this already. Uh, Bovada Sportsbook, Chiefs minus one. Big weekend on Super Bowl. Here's what I want to know, though, Smalls. Before we get into our guest, what are you doing for the Super Bowl and what's your menu look like? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm going to do anything. I've We have 5 a.m. practice on Monday, so that's brutal. Um, so probably not going to do anything. Probably eat something light that's not going to um, make me stay up. <laughs> and eat something greasy or heavy. I, I have a tough time sleeping. So I might have a nice uh, wedge salad, maybe a little blue cheese to fatten me up, bacon bits, and, uh, you know, maybe uh, sparkling water to really spice it up. Is a wedge salad considered light? I mean, that seems like one of the things that, yeah. like, unhealthy people eat and they, they yeah. try to convince themselves they're healthy. Wow. That's, you, you know it too well. That is exactly. I'm eating a salad. Meanwhile, this salad is delicious blue cheese and bacon. All <laughs> I love it. I would say uh, one other thing is that, you know, it, it's funny that Coach McGee does not subscribe to the theory of uh, – the day after the Super Bowl should be a national holiday. I'm a pretty big fan of that theory, Smalls, just because I don't know how many people that I know well that don't watch the Super Bowl. Like, I, I'm going to – Beth and I are going to a friend's house on Sunday, just a little get-together, small group of people. As I told you before, I'm very picky about where I'll go watch the Super Bowl. They got a big TV, but also not a lot of talking. They want to they watch commercials, so they, they don't – yeah, they don't talk. You get to watch the game. I bring over the little prop bet sheet that Bovada provides. You can get that online. It's actually pretty cool. You play it with just random people. It has some questions about commercials, has some questions about the Gatorade color, has, you know, football questions, but it kind of brings everybody together. But this place we're going, the other two girls that are going to be there, they couldn't care less about football. They watch one football game a year. But they're going to be staying up. You know, they're going to be watching J-Lo at halftime, betting on Bovada, which, which one of the songs she sings first. And they don't want to get up for work the next day either. So I just think that, you know, her having practice at 5 a.m., I'm just going to say it. Like, I'm not a fan. I'm just disappointed in him. I'm really disappointed in him. Oh, and that's the difference between you and the greats. I mean, hey, while everyone's taking the day off, you know, we're trying to get better. The players are getting better. And uh, we're getting our day started early. No days off, you know. Give me. Do you have Sunday off? You play Caldwell at Caldwell, real big game, and then I believe you're, and then you're at Post on Monday on Wednesday, right? Saturday. Oh, so called. What is it? Is it? Did I mix it up? It's Caldwell Saturday, Post Saturday. Oh, so you have a week off in between games. So it would make it makes no sense to have practice at five a.m. Oh, it absolutely does. It's a great chance. There's a great opportunity to work outside of the scout and uh, work on 
skill-based fundamentals, principles on defense instead of very scout-specific elements. So, yeah, that's. I think it's great. I think uh, having practice on Monday is great. I will agree with you on this. I think the Super Bowl should be moved to a Saturday. That would just be a solution. Now we don't have to enact the holiday. Saturday, everyone can literally be hungover on Sunday like normal. Um, they can relax, rest, and then get the Sunday scaries like typical. Don't throw people's scaries off, you know what I mean? Now Monday, you're waking up and you're getting the Sunday scaries. It really throws your whole week off. You're not sure what day it is. And it takes a couple weeks to bounce back. Tell you what, that won't happen to Los here. Um, pretty excited about it. So, again, uh, you know, just excited about watching the Super Bowl. Yeah, I, I love that about you. I, I think it's it's going to be a good game. I, I uh, it made me happy to see that most of the analytic people, you know, the people that I really trust, they uh, the analytics community seems to be leaning a little bit more towards the Chiefs, whereas the uh, tough guy, like old school football community, is leaning more towards the Forty ers And and I would say generally in those scenarios, I feel like the analytics community wins out as much as the uh, tough guy community doesn't want to admit it. But we'll see. It's a one game thing. Anything can happen. I'd love to see Andy Reid get a Super Bowl. I mean, Mahomes never plays bad. He, like, only ever plays good or great. So it would be pretty – I mean, I'm excited to see him on a stage. I don't think we're going to see another 10-3 game, Smalls, like we did last oh, yeah. year. So I don't think so. Jimmy G, that's, that's the guy you got to watch. Like, if you – let's see if he throws over eight passes and really has to start launching the ball. I know KC defense isn't too good, but – Tell you what, if he throws eight passes, if he throws eight passes, San Francisco probably won pretty big, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. So we'll see about that. But we know how Andy is when he's coming off a bye week. This counts as a bye week. Like we should really, you know, if you are going to, you know, go over to Wavada and put a wager on the game, that would be something I would pay attention to is this is technically Andy Reid off a bye week, even though it's just a little bit weird. It's like their third bye, but, you know, he gets his team ready to go. So a guy that we are know is familiar with Andy Reid, our guest this week, Scott Bittner, head coach of the Stockton College Ospreys, small Stockton, a place that I'm pretty familiar with from running events there down in, I don't know if it's Galloway or Pomona, New Jersey, but it's right near Atlantic City uh, and, a, and a place that's had a ton of success in the NJAC over the last couple of years. And Scott was a fun guy to have on. It's his fourth year, but we got to talk to him about coaching with the interim tag on. He replaced Coach Matthews, you know, all-time great at Stockton, 600-plus wins, New Jersey legend, national runner-up appearance. So Scott replaces him when he – he was associate head coach on staff, and he replaces him in that 2016 season. But he has to coach the whole season with the interim tag on. And I think, you know, that's a dynamic we haven't necessarily gotten into on this show a whole lot over the last couple of years. Yeah, and it's a dynamic that comes up, uh, you know, up more often, it seems, as the years go on. I don't know if that's just in my mind or just as I get older, but it seems to happen more and more where uh, a head coach is either getting relieved of his duties middle of the year, right before the year, they're either taking a leave of absence, something like that, and the interim tag gets placed on. It's how you react to those situations, and they can really happen at any moment. So as an assistant coach listening to this or, you know, if you're the next person in line, you know, as you look around for other jobs, just know this could pop up. You've got to be ready and prepared. I don't How prepared you can be. Uh, Scott speaks way more to that than us. I mean, he's been through it, which is super interesting. Uh, but it's something that you kind of have to just take and roll with. And, you know, I appreciate his sentiments about, uh, you know, taking that and kind of moving forward. Uh, but awesome interview. 
uh, I think it's a, it's a great listen and it's a super fun city review. I know we had a good time and it's always cool to have a coach really pumped for that uh, kind of listens religiously and, you know, also wants to, wants to tell us a little bit about the area. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I would also want to point out too, that we have had, you know, like Aaron Toomey, we had him on before the season started at Amherst. He's coaching with the interim tag and then Nick Deshaies coaching with the interim tag at FNM. And so those are guys we've kind of seen, before the process and during the process, and now Scott, you know, after the process, wins the ECAC title his first year there, goes 18 and 11, and, you know, now he's in his fourth year and getting to do things a little bit, you know, his own way. Also, one other really fun thing, kind of his story about how he got into coaching, was a really good Division II player, but then kind of was coaching in high school, has a lot of friends around the business that are well-known guys, and like Billy Lang, uh, Chris Gridio at Widener. And then, you know, Scott decides to make a choice. He's just kind of working and coaching in, on the side. And he decides to make a choice and go for it, Smalls, and sell the family restaurant and, and just decide like, hey, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for coaching full time. And I think those types of stories always really resonate with us. And it's no surprise that like a guy like him would be a, somebody that listens to the podcast because it does, you know, his story kind of lines up with a lot of different things that we've talked about and people that we've had on the show. And so I always enjoy guys like that. And getting guys who are, you know, who are listeners onto the show because it's fun. They kind of know how it goes. They vibe with the two of us. And, and we do get to hear a little bit more, I think, behind the curtain. And it's not quite as canned. And I, I thought Scott was really good in that regard. Yeah. And again, that, that lends itself to just building the community. I know, you know, it's nothing super special, but there is a community of coaches who, despite, you know, popular belief or what you see sometimes on Twitter, actually don't take themselves completely too seriously uh everyone's serious about their jobs but they are people outside of the industry uh their fathers husbands uh wives whatever it may be they are you know people outside of this industry and they have lives outside of it and how they set up their career and how that interacts with each other that's what we're trying to get out of here and i think um definitely you know throughout the different interviews we've had especially with scott that lends itself to be true yeah. And so uh, real quick before we sign off, like I said, if you guys are looking for something fun to do on Super Bowl Sunday, you can uh, search Bovada Prop Sheet Super Bowl 54 online. Real cool. Like I said, National Anthem Props, who wins the coin toss, first coach mentioned, will Alex Rodriguez get you know shown? So real fun. Uh, you can do it for real money. You have people throw in five, ten bucks, tally it up if you're at a big Super Bowl party, or you can, you know, kind of do it like me, where it's just for fun to get everyone involved, so you don't look like that guy who, you know, has bet tons of money on the Super Bowl and is just not into, you know, having a good time. So, wanted to throw that out there. You know, other than that, same thing I say every week. Uh, please do get in touch with us. We are at Create Your Shout on Twitter. Uh, one of the things I want to get going is, you know, Josh Leffler did this, but if you hear Coach speak stuff tag us. I want to get as much coach speak going as possible. If you have coach speak, I'm going to start really paying attention to the guys that we've had on the show before. And when they tweet things, like I got Matt Goldsmith about this earlier. If you tweet something that's coach speak, like we're tagging it, hashtag coach speak. Like we got to get this going. So get at us on Twitter at create your shot pod on Instagram, create your shot on Facebook, create your shot at gmail.com. Reach out to us. If you like what you hear, please do leave a review. Uh, leave us five stars, shoots us up the rankings. And uh, as always, we appreciate everybody who listens and enjoy this week's interview with Scott Bittner, the head coach of the Stockton Ospreys.
We are pleased to be joined by Scott Bittner, the head coach of the Stockton Ospreys out of the NJAC Conference. Scott, we appreciate you joining us. How are you tonight? I'm great, guys. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. And basically every episode, in fact, three of them today on the Ocean City Boardwalk. Um, trying to get ready. Means you're getting cardio in, right? If you're on the OC Boardwalk, you're out there running or are you doing a, a power walk, kind of a coach's walk, if you will? No, no, no. I, I, I get the bike out. So it was 26 degrees. I got the bike out. There's a four mile an hour wind, which so I, I can bike in any any degree as long as there's no wind. So I did about 20 miles on the bike and then I ran a couple of miles on the beach and uh, and here I am. Man, you I and mean, that just makes me and small sound. You know what I did today? I walked the dog 12 minutes around the neighborhood, felt real good about it. You know, so I'm not doing as good as you are today, Scott. I'll, I'll say that. Well, that, that's, that's like Tony Perkis level, you know, like heavyweight. Guys <laughs> just carrying around the bike, start to lift him, just insulting people. I love it. I'm going to go for a insulted. I love it. I, I, I have bad eating and drinking habits. <laughs> that's, that's what you got to do. You just, all you got to do is answer the bell, make sure you can maintain, you know, you're, you're a husband, you're a father. At this point, you know, you're, you're mainly just trying to make sure that you're there, you know, like it's not, but nobody, you're not trying really to impress anybody anymore, Scott. That's the one thing I tell people all the time. You just got to maintain, you know, we're not quite at that age yet where maintaining is right, I guess, but boardwalk is good. Right, right. All right, let's get into it a little bit. Uh, you're in the midst of your fourth year as the head coach at Stockton coming off a win against Rutgers Camden. I think you guys are nine and three in conference. You know, what's going right and what's going wrong for you guys this year? It's been a bit of a bounce back year. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're really happy with where we are. I mean, we're in first place in the NJAC. Um, I'm not sure I would have thought we were going to be there. Um, you know, what's gone right is um, we've stayed healthy and, you know, guys have stayed in good standing academically and financial aid, and that's the first time in the last three years I can say that. And uh, we, we've had a great group in terms of being uh, completely connected and locked in. Um, defensively, we've been outstanding. We're, we're actually third in the country in field goal percentage defense. So, you know, 150 Division three schools or whatever, you know, to be third in the country is saying something. And then, um, you know, I, I just think our guys like each other, and they've shown up every day to work, and uh, we've had a lot of fun. Um, you know, the, the only issue we've had is just, just rebounding from the break and just trying to get uh, pick up where we left off, uh, you know, because we were playing really well in the end of December. And then, uh, yeah, you take your nine days, um, and then, we're, you know, we just don't come back as locked in, and uh, we're still trying to get there. The break is kind of a beast for everybody, especially at the D3 level. You know, we talked to Josh Merkel about it. Like, you let your guys go, and you don't know really how they're going to come back, and you hope you do the right thing. But, you know, have you tried anything different or – you know, anything that Coach Matthews kind of used to do to make sure, like, hey, we can come out of the break ready to go? Or do you just sort of have to roll with it and each year is different? Uh, you know, and I think what you do is you threaten the guys a lot in that last few days of practice and, and basically say, you know, I'm going to run your asses off the first couple of days. If you're not in reasonable shape, you're going to be absolutely miserable. Um, and that hasn't, that hasn't worked at all. Um, you know, I give this story. I thought – you know, I thought I really did well as a player when we went home on Christmas break. I, you know, I made sure I put the weighted vest on. I ran the, the beach in Ocean City. I ran a heavy hand. And my goal was to go back in better shape than when I left because I wanted to, uh, to avoid the uh, misery of those practices. And that hasn't worked. 
Um, you know, this year we backed off our pressure a little bit uh, because last year I thought we really got burned. Um, I, I believe we went away last year like six and two or six and three, and then you know, we, we we just we were pressing and teams were just they shot like sixty six percent in the first four or five games after the break last year because we just kept keep uh, giving up corner three after corner three. Um, so I think we got a little bit smarter this year and, and, and just made sure we were really good in the half court. That's helped a little bit. Um, but we're still not where we were um, in mid-December. No, for sure. And that's always a challenge. I actually want to get into a little bit, uh, you know, your past and uh, specifically Tyler bringing up Coach Matthews. You get the job on an interim basis after Coach Matthews retired in 2016. You guys go 18-11, win the ECAC title. What was the first year like for you replacing a guy like Coach Matthews? Um, my situation was probably different than most. Um, I was really lucky. Um, the last four or five seasons I was with Jerry, um, we kind of changed the roles and I became like the game day manager and I did, you know, I did the sideline coaching and I got the technicals and, I called the sets and, you know, you know, for the most part, I ran the games for the last four or five years. Um, he was there and then, you know, he was just graded up, just helping me manage it and just throwing out things here and there. Um, you know, one of the thing, things I found out is when he was done, how detail oriented he was when it came to a lot of the really important things that win and lose games. Um, so back then I was really concerned with the play sheet. I was always able to just kind of be one step ahead, calling sets and whatnot. And, um, I didn't have to worry about the box outs and are we sprinting the floor? Are we crashing the glass? He took care of that stuff. And when he left, I didn't have a guy to do that stuff. You know, there wasn't anybody as mean as Jerry was when it came to that stuff. You know, he was, he was just great at just getting guys to run through a wall for him and, and, and to do those little things. And um, so one of the things I've done is just try to balance it a little bit and not be, you know, not, not care about being a set oriented, letting guys play a little bit more on offense. And then I'm going back to watching all those little things that win and lose games. What, what do you think made coach Matthews so unique in that aspect where he approached details like that so well, um, you know, of course, they're a coach. You mentioned it. You have to be ready for sets and be able to teach the game X and O's wise. But those hustle plays and those details, what do you think made Coach Matthews so, you know, good at uh, evaluating and then bringing out the potential of his players on those those aspects? Well, I, I'd say number one, he was unbelievably competitive. Um, so he wanted to win at all costs. I mean, he was as fiery as it gets, um, you know, for two hours a day. And, uh, you know, that I mean, he, he wanted to win. And, and you know, I, I don't think we get, you know, we don't get a brain surgeon. So we got to be good at something. So, you know, that was kind of what we hung our hat on is just defending and rebounding and, and doing that kind of stuff. Scott, how about off the court? Like you said, you, you did get to do a lot of the game day, you know, subbing and, and calling plays. But one of the biggest differences we always talk about from going from assistant or associate head coach to head coach is the amount of non-basketball stuff that you have to do. In the last few years that Jerry was there, did you get to do a lot of that off-court stuff? Or was that something that kind of got thrown in your face as soon as it was your first year as the head coach? 
No, I mean, I, I think I did a lot of the scheduling. Um, a lot of the stuff on the computer I did because he didn't have any idea how to turn the computer on and off. Um, I did all the, all the scanning and whatnot. Now, when it comes to administrative stuff, um, some of the stuff they ask you to do outside of basketball, that, that, was, that was kind of different for me. Um, I will say this. I'm really lucky. Stockton is great to their head coaches, and we don't have a million other roles. Um, they, they ask very little of us um, in other ways. So, uh, you know, it wasn't terrible. Yeah, that's and that's always something that I think is really helpful is how the athletic department supports you. And, you know, for people that haven't been to Stockton, I, you know, guys that know my personal backstory, like we ran an event there every single summer and it's an unbelievable facility for a D3 school kind of tucked in the back. The campus is really nice. And it's, you know, I, I think, Scott, it's a, you know, I don't want to do your recruiting pitch for you, but in terms of like what you can bring to the table for guys that come and visit and, and, and maybe see a game or like they understand how good the NJAC is, you know, Stockton has a ton to offer, and it, it, it's a, a job that I would think is a little bit of a sleeping giant in the end, Jack, and it's no surprise that you guys have had the success that you've had. And, you know, that's kind of why I was, I was curious about how last year was. You know, you guys go 10 and 15, you know, first losing season in a while. What was kind of the, the off season like for you this year? You know, kind of bouncing back. You have the two winning seasons your first two years as a head coach, ECAC title the first year. Then you go 10 and 15 and you're kind of like, hey, we got to turn this thing back around. What was it like for you in the offseason in terms of like plans for the players, recruiting, stuff with your staff? Like, did you do anything differently this offseason? Uh, I would say the biggest thing is I probably planned less for, for this season in terms of I was always so proactive where June, July and August, I'm laying out the first practices. I'm laying out what we're running. I'm doing all this. And and this year I said, you know what, I'm just worried about the things that control and win basketball games. And I just worried about whether we sprint the floor faster than everybody we play against. Do we have three guys crashing relentlessly on every shot? Do we box out on every play? Do we talk better than every team? Are we guarding the ball without needing help as well as we can? And just worried about the vanilla things. And, and I just let the other stuff go. And I kind of didn't even have a plan what we were going to do on offense until five or six practices in until I saw guys. And uh, that was the biggest thing. And, you know, I, I mean, I've always been a tireless recruiter. And, and I, you know, we just hit the jackpot with a few kids. Um, and, you know, without them, we certainly aren't where we are. And, you know, to have kids to come in the NJAC at 18 years old and play as well as some of ours has is unbelievable. Yeah, because you guys are really young this year, right? Is this one of the youngest teams that you've been around? I mean, you know, I, I say it all the time. Like, we, we have we have six, uh, maybe five now, very good freshmen. And two, uh, two of them maybe are two of our three best players. And, you know, we've had kids that played in the G League. We had a kid that was an All-American five or six years ago. And he played 14 minutes as a freshman. Um, so it is extremely hard to come in and play as a freshman in our league. And uh, what a few of these kids have done. I mean, you know, last Saturday, I guess, against Montclair, the one freshman had 25 and the other one had 16 and 10. And, you know, I, it just kind of baffles me because there's grown men in our league. I mean, there's like 27, 28-year-old guys in our league. So for those guys to come in and play as well as they have, it's just mind-boggling. No, that that's for sure. And that's – that's a great thing that you have, especially for the future. Uh, I want to know, you, you mentioned recruiting and your strategy and then 
your approach to this season. What was your approach to recruiting early on in your career and how has it evolved or changed or has it kind of maintained the same trajectory that, you know, you first started? I mean, you know, my main philosophy is just, just to outwork everybody for kids. I mean, if I know somebody else is recruiting a kid, um, I, I just try to make sure that I'm at more of his games and I'm texting him more and I'm, you know, sending him more videos. Um, the one thing I think I am is a lot more honest now because I don't want to waste any time. So, you know, I, I'll ask the serious questions about, you know, I want kids that have my DNA. I don't want kids that, that are pretenders. I want kids that love and basketball. And, you know, if they don't eat, sleep and drink basketball, then, then, you know, we're going to have trouble getting along to a degree. And uh, some of those kids find me extremely unreasonable, but you know, I don't, I just, I just don't want to waste any time. Um, and you know, that's the one area. And another thing I've gotten to be a lot better at is, is I know what our niche is. There's some kids I really like, but I know at the end of the day, we don't make great sense for them. Uh, there's a lot of middle-class kids that are going to get better packages from the private schools. Um, so I, I don't waste a lot of time on them. I, you know, our financial aid's great for low-income kids, and that's kind of what I chase. And, uh, you know, I've, I've done a decent job of not having to waste a lot of time. Yeah, I, I think you make a great point there. And I, me and Tyler kind of talked about this uh, you know, the outworking point. Uh, a lot of people will say that about recruiting, but there's specifics that go into outworking. Like being at games is important, but the way you said it, like I'm going to be honest with people. I'm going to ask them the important questions and send different videos and different materials and things like that. That's really what goes into outworking. So for young coaches, you know, it's not always I'm going to go to this hoop group event and that hoop group event. It's being smart. It's being efficient and knowing who to talk to and where to go to and making sure you're at those events. So I appreciate that from a, from a recruiting standpoint. I guess, when did you have that realization that maybe, not necessarily want to be more honest, but I want to get the profile of the type of kid I want quicker, or I want to know if this kid fits. When did that realization happen for you? I, I would say I was probably stubborn for a few years with it, and then last season was a big game changer. I mean, we had two or three really talented kids. Um, you know, they were both all South Jersey kids. One of them was a first team all South Jersey kid, but we just couldn't get along. They they didn't love it like I loved it. In fact, you know, both of them I kind of cut this year, and they were both stars, um, starter cal starter caliber. Um, and, and I just said, you know what, I'm not wasting time with the guys that don't want to be in the gym. I, I you know. They're energy vampires, and I'm just not interested in it. So I, I guess it was last season. I really, I really just said, you know what? There's no sense of wasting time. That's a little John Gordon uh, reference there, right? Energy vampires. It they, is. It is. Yeah. Well, I think I think it was Energy Bus. I one of one of the guys I work for at CFC gave it to me. I read it on the beach. You know, a little little page out of your book there, bit going to the beach, like watching some waves go and reading a little John Gordon, trying to get better at my craft. You know. Uh, <laughs> I want to talk about, you talk about love and basketball and you actually, you know, you had an awesome division two career at Wheeling Jesuit in the hall of fame there, D2 All-American. I think you played three years there. What was your recruiting like? Cause you ended up going to junior college or community college out of high school. But if, if you don't mind taking us back there, like, you know, were you always planning on playing division two? Were there no prep schools? Did you have any division one offers? I mean, you were a big time scorer in three years. What was your kind of high school to college situation like as a player? Um, 
you know, I, the biggest thing is I was a complete train wreck in the classroom as a high school student. Um, you know, my father made the mistake in ninth grade of telling me that the only class I would ever use is typing. So I believe I got an A in typing three years in a row. And I'm not sure I got above a D in anything else. So, so that, you know, that, that was, that was a big reason for it. Um, you know, I, of course I had dreams and everything else. And, um, you know, I played at St. August. It was a, you know, a real good basketball factory. And, and it was just at the beginning stages of that then. Um, and I had some low do on school come look at me and whatnot. And, you know, I mean, I could have been seven foot tall, but if they took one look at my transcript, they didn't come back for a second visit. So I, I spent one year in junior college and I grew up. And, um, you know, the amazing thing is I was always kind of a better kid when I was on my own. Um, and, you know, I was a Dean's List student in college and in high school. I just kind of mailed it in and I was just, I was stubborn. I, I just I just knew that 99% of what they were teaching me, I would never see again. So I refused to study it. And, uh, you know, thank God it worked out for me. Um, now, how I got how I got to wheeling is, is, uh, you know, when I was about 15 or 16, uh, Chris Curdio and I, uh, Chris was, you know, my closest friend uh, growing up um, or one of them, certainly. And him and I would hitchhike to Avalon when we were about 15 or 16 to play pickup, um, you know, at 637 o'clock in the morning. And uh, if I can give you a list of the names that played there back then, I mean, there's probably 10 Division One head coaches. I mean, you know, Coach O'Hanlon was a big one. Stevie Donahue, Pat Chambers, the Earl brothers, Matt Langle, Chris Collins. Um, you know, and then you had Legler and guys like that. The games were unbelievable and it was worth the sketchy rides we would get to get there. But, um, so, uh, you know, I, I had a really good relationship with coach O'Hanlon. And in fact, he grew up with my dad. My dad was a little bit older, but, uh, they had a real good relationship, you know, 15 or 20 years earlier. And coach O'Hanlon actually got me my scholarship at Wheeling sight unseen. Um, because at the time the head coach at Wheeling was Jay DeFruccio, who's a Bonner guy. Um, he's now actually president of Cardinal O'Hara. Um, and he gave me a scholarship basically without seeing me based on, uh, coach O'Hanlon's recommendation. So I did one year in junior college, um, did well academically. Um, I was going to go to Wheeling the next year and my dad got, he got uh sick for the first time. So I stayed home and just, just kind of, you know, spent time with the family. I coached St. Augustine as a 19-year-old kid and uh, took classes at a local community college. And then I went to Wheeling the following year. Um, but it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Um, you know, it was, it was, you know, just an unbelievable experience. It was a great level for me. Um, I had great teammates, five or six of us from the Philly area. And, uh, you know, it couldn't have worked out any better. Yeah, I actually talked to that's it's funny, like small world. I, I happen to be in Philly, you know, I've said on this podcast before, my wife and I are moving back and, you know, Smalls and I are real good friends with Ryan Nemitz, who's the head coach at Cardinal O'Hare. And I actually happened to be talking to Jay DeFuscio the other day, just when I was in there, like I saw him, he stopped by and, you know, he just introduced himself and I had, I knew he had spent some time in the NBA and he spent some time at the, uh, he was like Atlantic 10 commissioner, but I, I did not know how much time he had spent as the head coach at Wheeling Jesuit. So that is funny it's a small world man like just uh in the basketball community to hear the people that have been in those like avalon and ocean city type games you know the way you hear it like 
Michael Jordan might have shown up one six thirty in the morning, you know, and, and played on those outdoor courts. But it, it is he might have not amazing. gotten on though. Yeah, you know it, that's mean? true. You gotta wait your turn, and if you lose, good luck. You better come back. And- well, the funny thing is, is um, you know, back then I was pretty good friends with Matt Maloney, and Matt was, I guess, co Ivy League Player of the Year. And and I would bring Matt to Avalon with me, and the regulars at Avalon couldn't stand playing with Matt because all he wanted to do was like break people down and dribble and shoot. So like Matt was Matt would sit on the sidelines. You know, like it, it was a really hard game to get into. Chris and I, it took us two or three years to get adjusted, just the pace of it. I mean, another big name in those games would be uh, Steve Rosenberry, who's the assistant GM of uh, the Trailblazers. And like between him and Dunnyu and those guys, like the movement without the ball and the things I learned about basketball, just playing pickup with those guys was, was, it was, it was priceless. For, for people that are listening who maybe are not familiar with the name Steve Rosenberry, if you ever went to a basketball camp on the East coast and a lanky dude did a shooting clinic, that wasn't named Dave Hopla and made every single shot. That was probably Steve Rosenberry because his, his shooting clinics are unbelievable. Like I, I think I watched 200 shots in a row, no misses. You know what I mean? Just while talking, sweating, running around, it's that guy can, he can stroke it. No, I mean, there would, there would literally be 35-mile-an-hour winds in the Avalon courts. And Steve, you know, we call him Rosie. Rosie would just throw these darts at the basket. And, I mean, it was unbelievable. If you weren't like, you know, it was just crazy. It was just such, you know, the, the one real sad thing I have for my children and, you know, this generation is they're not going to experience basketball at the greatest level. And those games and just, just the camaraderie and the friendships – um, I made in those games are, um, are, are, are a big thing that's missing in today's basketball. Yeah. I mean, everybody that we know, you know, that, that was part of that and played in it, like they try to get their kids to play. And now I, I guess, I don't know if they run, I know they still do an outdoor league in the summer. Like I know ocean city does smalls and I've gone to a couple games, never really played in the league, but so, I, but I don't know if they still run those. Yeah. You know, the Seattle still courts get... still, they still try. I mean, like the morning things you can show up, but I don't think it's as, uh, great as it used to be where people were waking up as early as possible so they could get on the first game and be the first run. Yeah. I do wish that would come back because whether you were in the Seattle courts when it was down in Avalon, obviously that goes back a little further. And then 34th street in ocean city always had great games as well. And even if you went down by eighth street, like the Plymouth area, seventh and eighth, um, uh, by the uh, Wonderland, I think it is. Those courts had good games sometimes too. But I, I do no. That. Back back in the eighties, back in the eighties, you would have five or six NBA players on those Sixth Street courts. And then you know, I mean, I would hightail it through the alleys and get the Thirty Fourth Street. And then you know, I would play with Steph uh, Gately, who I yeah, I guess she mentioned pretty on I on on our podcast with you guys. Um, you know, I grew up playing with her and. Uh, you know, her husband, Frank, has got, got to be the most hated villain in the yep. history of 34th Street basketball. <laughs> and I've heard that from multiple coaches that Frank is a bad, bad guy on the court, throwing elbows, all sorts of things. Maybe we can bring him on to defend himself one day, but um, I'm going to take that for what it is. He's equally as nice off of it. <laughs> he, he he randomly texted us one day, Smalls and I, about talking crap about him on the podcast with uh, – we had Mark Vanderslice on, 
And uh, I guess Frank listened to that. He figured out how to how to listen to a podcast, and he w- he was not happy with how he was portrayed as a villain on the basketball court. But that is his reputation, unfortunately, is that he throws a lot of elbows, a lot of moving screens, maybe a punch you know, or two up. right in the face. Yeah, mo- I, don't know. I mean, Biddy can't he can't move. You know, he can't move anymore. You got to It's like I know how it is. You got to talk. You got to throw throw your weight around. That's what you have to do if you can't make shots. And you know, he hasn't been a shot maker in a lot of years. I'm sure. No, I'm I'm actually like seven or eight blocks from Mrs. Anderslice, um, Steph's mom, and and you know distant and you know their grandmother and Duchess, um, and I would say that their grandfather Harry is maybe the second or third most in, influential person in my life, um, in terms of uh, yeah, I mean I, I was a train wreck as a kid. I mean I had the worst temper ever. And uh, he, he, he's the one guy that could channel my temper and, and get it to work in the right ways on the baseball field and on the basketball court. So I, I go way back with the Vander Slices. Uh, my mom and dad both taught, to, you know, uncles and aunts and whatnot uh, in the Ocean City schools. So uh, after after college, you know, I know you didn't you kind of were coaching it. I know you helped at Augie's for a little while, but like. When did you decide I'm going to do this thing? I'm going to go full bore at coaching. I know there's a little bit of a story there, but I'm not as familiar with it. But, you know, I, I know I think you were working at a restaurant at the time, maybe. And then you decided, like, you know what, I'm going to take a shot at this. And that's how you ended up at Stockton. But what did you kind of do in between, you know, graduating? Yeah, it's uh, I, I, my first year out of college, I coached at Bishop Eustis. Um, Billy Lang is another one of my best friends and I coached with him and his dad and um, his dad actually fell off the roof and had an accident that year. And, you know, it it was touch and go if he was even going to live. And next thing you know, like Billy's running the show as a 22 year old kid. And I'm like his top assistant and we're playing St. Anthony's in the state championship. Um, So we had an unbelievable experience that year and Billy did a phenomenal job and, and you know his career just took off after that um my situation was different I mentioned earlier my dad was sick well you know I we, we had a family business it was a bar and a restaurant it was really stressful it was a ton of hours um on him and when I got done college I had you know, my mom's British so I had some opportunities to play in England um Coach O'Hanlon had a graduate assistant job open and I, I decided to come home and help my dad and just, just try to take a load off of his back. So for 10 years, I did that. And, uh, you know, I, I gave him and my mom a great opportunity to travel and, and I would never regret it because, uh, you know, the, the value he had in his life. Um, and, and then, you know, eventually he did succumb to cancer. And when that happened, um, you know, I, I just I just said I got to get out of this business. I mean, it was like seventy or eighty hour weeks. Um, I was basically ruining people's lives for a living. Um, you know, I it, it, it was just got to be really sad for me to see you know night after night the same people come in and sit in the same bar stool and you know they're smoking three packs in an hour. I mean, you know, they're gambling away their money, they're drinking away their money. So I I I, I just got tired of that. So. When that happened, um, you know, my mom, my brother, I decided we would sell that. And uh, and I bought a car wash because I thought the car wash would give me more flexibility and would allow me to coach. So I bought a car wash about a mile from Stockton. And um, Chris Curdio and a few other people called Jerry for me. I had never met him. 
Um, you know, in fact, I went to an NJAC game the previous year just to see what it was like. And a kid from Ramapo went after the coach in the huddle and they arrested him. And that was my introduction to NJAC basketball. And I kind of said, you know what, this is for me. This is like right up my alley. Um, so, uh, you know, the rest is history. But I did. And I still own the car wash. Um, if you know anybody looking for a car wash, um, you know, I'm selling it pennies on the dollar now because I basically ran it into the ground trying to be a coach. <laughs> well, that's that's how the story goes a lot for a lot of coaches. There's, you know, a lot of sacrifice being made, obviously, and it's challenging. Uh, but ultimately, you make it work. And I want to know those when you started, when your first couple years, obviously, you're excited to coach uh, just like anyone would. You're excited to get involved, get back to the game of basketball that you love. What were those first few years really like? And what was challenging for you uh, starting out as assistant coach? Um, you know, it was funny. My first year at Eustis, all I wanted to do was play. So all I did was like get in the drills and just try to kick the heck out of people. And then, you know, once I got there, I was still playing pickup a lot in Ocean City, um, but I had it out of my system. So I was really ready to go full tilt. Um, and it, it took me about a month or two where I was just trying to feel my way. And then, and then just one day, I, it just kind of, I just kind of snapped. And, uh, I mean, I became really intense and really into it. And, um, and I just kind of fell in love with the kids we had. We had kids that that uh, needed more than just a coach. Um, you know, when I was in high school, I was lucky enough to spend a lot of time with the Hurleys. And Coach Hurley was great to me. And I was staying with them on weekends or, you know, for a week at a time or two weeks at a time. And I always dreamed of being having an impact like Coach Hurley did and coaching kids that needed more than just a coach. And uh, when I got the stocks and I, it was, it was kind of eerily similar in a, in a college kind of way. And uh, I just fell in love with the relationship with the kids. And, and what, what was, what was, I guess the, so developing relationships with kids, we always talk about it with different coaches. It's a process of learning how to do that, especially relearning it. Uh, you know, when you start out, especially at the college level, how were you able to, you know, develop and interact with those kids? Did you find common ground immediately or was it more of a process for you uh, going in your first couple of years? Um, you know, I, I think maybe I had a reputation as a player that may have helped. I mean, I would get in the gym and I would work them out. I was really a, a big into player development back then. Um, I would play in some pickup games. Um, now I, you know, it's more than ten years ago, so the NCAA can't do anything about it. But I was, you know, I, 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 you know, and I, I mean, I can remember being in some pickup games in our old gym, and 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 you know, I just kind of had a different, a different switch in a pickup game, and some of the talking I did didn't always go very well, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so so that was the end of the pickup games with with the players and the kids on campus. But I, you know. I'm not a whole lot brighter than our kids. So I think they, they kind of feel like we have common ground in that way as well. Oh, that makes sense. I, I did want to talk <laughs> about your first, your first, th uh, I think it was your year two, three, and four. You guys really get it rolling there. Uh, year three, you guys won 30 games, go to the national championship, finish national runner up. What was it like to be part of that success so early in your career and kind of like, what was your role on those first couple years on staff, especially when things were just, you know, you guys were one of the best teams in the country. 
Yeah, I mean that that team was just insane. Um, uh, you know, I, I, it's interesting how things come together. I mean, we got one or two transfers. I mean, we had a really good supporting cast. Um, I can kind of argue that my first year at Stockton may have been our most talented team. Um, you know, we had a six eight high school All American that was coming off the bench for us that that you know had had, had problems previously, and he was an Atlantic, he was an Atlantic City kid, and we were like his last stop. And he didn't even start for us. So we had really good players that, that first and second year. But the third year, I think things clicked. Um, guys got along great. Um, the one thing I'm learning is is the more connected the team is um, and the better they get along on the bus trips and this and that, the better they're going to play. And that, that was just a really special group. Um, we, had a, we had a really good, like a 6'3", 6'4", wing. And... Um, he was really unselfish and our point guard was a first team all American and we're not sure he was even our best player, but he, he got a lot of the credit cause he was the point guard. And the day they announced that he was the player of the year in the end, Jack, the genuine smile on this other kid's face who very easily could have been jealous or very, you know, it, 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 right when I saw that smile, I said, man, this team has a chance to be really, really special. And then we go through the NCAA tournament and we beat a really good Gwen Mercy team. Um, I think we beat Immaculata. And then um, and then in the game to go to the Final Four, we won by 43, like 103 to 60. Um, but we lost one of our top players. So we actually played in the Final Four without two of our top six players. Um, the one kid went ineligible at the end of January. And then this other kid who was our best athlete got hurt in the game to go to the final four. And we always kind of wonder what would have happened in that, in that national championship game. If we had, you know, everyone healthy. Yeah. And that's always something you wonder. Uh, yeah. I, I really like something you said about staying connected and the, the players relationships, how important that and how more important you see that in your teams. I'm wondering how do you go about fostering those relationships? Cause sometimes it's not, necessarily players come in and they just click right away but there is potential there have you figured out ways to be able to foster relationships uh between the team and players well the big thing is i just getting rid of kids that didn't buy in this year um you know i i I just i just wanted good kids i wanted kids that that cared about we before me um i constantly talk about being connected it's our number one core value i I send out like highlights of where we look connected. Um, I'll put on the board before a game. Let's just leave, let let's just get more high fives and them. Who cares about everything else? You know, um, you know when we're in practice. You know, every time some you pass somebody, you know, you want to high five or say hello or talk. Um, so we we just kind of beat it into them. Um, Billy Lang's the one that kind of got me that. Um, we spend a lot of time together in the summer. You know. Um, when he's in Ocean City, and and we were kind of talking about core values, and uh, you know, my greatest asset maybe as a person is is um, I just love camaraderie. I love being friends with a lot of different people, and he, you know, he said my greatest strength is being connected. That should be your number one core value because that's who you are, and and it kind of clicked. So uh, I I think that's my personality. Um, you know, the, the friendships right with the coaches and the players is the most important thing to me, and maybe that rubs off on them a little bit. 
No, I, I, I really appreciate that. I think it's something unique that we haven't really heard on this podcast, but it's so important to building teams. You can have the most talent, and yeah, that talent can take you super far, but when you have those disconnects um, in those big games or when you're trying to reach conference championships and ultimately national titles or Final Fours, that's really the difference. And uh, when you have a program that fosters that and you're able to recruit kids like that, it makes it that much more enjoyable for everybody. I want to ask, I, I know you're a tireless recruiter, worker, um, you know, coaching's your passion, but work-life balance is always, always a delicate balance. How do you kind of maintain and go about that? Uh, I don't. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't. Um, you know, I, I think one of the really – you know, one of the difficult things is when you do what you love for a living, um, you inherently want to bring it home with you. Um, most people, 99% of the people don't do jobs they love. So when they get home, they want to forget about their job. So it's easy for them to detach. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure I think about anything else 99% of the time. Um, I mean, I, I try to include your family in it. Um, my kids, I, I bring them to practice as much as I can. Um, the only bad thing is that is I have a four and a six year old that talk like sailors <laughs> and, you know, um, you know, the, some of the things they say in class and Jackson, my son is picking fights because, you know, he, he just, he just thinks you're all supposed to be after people. I mean, so, so, I mean, that, that's how I do it. I mean, I, I just, I have them around and my kids are in the locker room and, and, you know, so right now I'm just trying to teach them that there are only certain words you can say in the gym. And when you leave the gym, <laughs> you kind of kind of clean it up. <laughs> oh, man, I love it. That was always the biggest struggle was like deciding like, all right, you're going to go out with your wife's parents like for dinner. You know, you're not at practice. Can you can you not drop the F-bomb at 545 when the appetizer shows up at the table? That was always a big And the answer is uh, always no, you can't. Uh, it's before the first beer comes. <laughs> I definitely struggle more with it than I should for, for a person who's a, an adult at this point. You know, like I should be better at it. When I was 22 and like a loose cannon, like that, I you know, it was acceptable. Now it's now it's probably not so good around the Thanksgiving table to be dropping, you know, MF or, you know, I just tip my cap. It's kind of what it is. But all right. One coach speak. Uh, Smalls kind of ruined the other one that was pretty good about relationships. But I got one from Jeff Tapel, head coach at Pitt. Uh, he said, great is different. The way great thinks is different. The way they approach stuff is different. The guys that are really great are constantly trying to learn, get better, figure out different ways to beat you, different ways to improve. You've been in this game a long time. You know, a lot of times as a player. One of the biggest things I think as a coach is to, you know, stay ahead of the curve. And I think it's kind of interesting that you mentioned about like changing it up and doing hustle, hustle plays and stuff like that. But, you know, for you, especially X's and O's, how do you make sure you're staying up to date? How do you make sure you're staying ahead of the pack in the league? You, you work in a league with some great coaches. You know, what are you doing to make sure you're still right up there with all of them? Uh, you know, I, I actually think it's probably my biggest downfall is I, I, I try to take in too much information. And, you know, so I'm on Twitter, I'm on here, I'm on YouTube. And, you know, I, I Billy Lang said another great thing. He said, you know, Jay Wright would, would take in as much information as he could. But 99% of the time he would say, I really like this, but not for us. And I, I try to look at it that way because, I you know, you can't do everything. And simple wins, 
Um, fundamentals win. It scheme doesn't win. Relationships win. Um, you know, not beating yourself wins. Like, you know, it's not your playbook. It, it's not any of that other stuff. The t- teams that win at Division Three play a simple brand of basketball, and they just do it over and over really well. And, um, you know, I, I take it in and I say that's not for me. Um, whereas in the past, I, I would have, a, you know, you know, 120 plays in our playbook, and my guys don't know five of them. I mean, that, that was the part about Jay Wright that always kind of – that the, the script kind of flipped on him was that, you know, when they finally broke through and, you know, even they went to the Final Four, obviously, the Scotty Reynolds team, but then, you know, he had a couple down years after that. And then when they finally broke through and with that group with Ryan Arch and Chris Jenkins and Ochafu and then Jalen Brunson after that, it was like everybody who watched them who understood basketball was like, this team is so good at all of the little fundamentals. And then people started to go watch practice and they were like, they really don't do anything – it's like out of control, except for the fact that their culture is unbelievable and they just drill everything to within an inch of his life. So you don't have guys making mistakes like, oh, okay, so-and-so graduates, great. Mikel Bridges off the bench, just ready to go, future lottery pick. It's like, that's, I think, what made, you know, it's funny you mentioned that with Billy Lang because he was obviously there for that. But it's like, that's what made Jay special is like, after a while, it was like his teams just didn't make mistakes. Like the simple stuff, they did it better than everybody in the country. So the talent gap all of a sudden didn't seem so big. And then he started getting better players. And it's like, boom, two national titles in three years. It's, it's amazing to think about. And I think it's absolutely correct. Yeah, I mean, it's especially at our level. Division three is, you know, you, you don't get as much time. The teams that are winning um, play a really simple brand of basketball. I mean, Amherst will run the same thing over and over and over again. And, and they just do it great. And those programs make their kids more instinctive. Whereas when, you know, when, when you're throwing too much at them, you know, it slows their feet down. And uh, they're not near as good instinctively as, uh, as you would like. So I just keep it simple and make sure they defend and rebound and give them a little bit of leash. And if they're unselfish, you live with whatever you're doing on offense. Yeah, and I want you to you ignore that and give us a lot of information on this next segment. I love how you described it before the interview started. You're bringing 10 of your best coaching friends, coaching buddies down to your area. And I'm going to I'm going to call it your area cuz they can go all the way to Atlantic City, we can go to Ocean City, wherever you want to take us, you take us. But let's give three restaurants, two bars and an activity. I know you're going to dominate here, coach. Yeah, so I mean, this is what we're going to do. We are going to do like we're going to do mid afternoon on a Friday, so everybody beats the traffic down the shore. I got ten buddies, and you guys are tagging along, and we're going to round table it for the weekend. And I'm 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 sending my family away, and everybody's crashing at my house. So we're at three o'clock. We got a core full of beer, and uh, we're talking hoops in the backyard, sitting by the pool. Um, five thirty, six o'clock. I got an Atlantic City jitney coming to pick us up. Yes. So there's going to be twelve. Yeah, twelve of us are getting into an Atlantic City jitney, and we're going to go to Stephen Cookies in Margate, which you know it's certain publications will have it as the best restaurant in the state of New Jersey. Um, they have whatever you want. Um, I always go with a stuffed pork chop, and uh, they have a raw bar. They have great seafood. The homemade desserts are unbelievable. Um, it's a great scene. You could go in there and you'll find uh, World Wide West, Charles Barkley, Scotty Pippen, whoever else. Um, but it's a great scene. So we're going to go there until they kick us out because we're going to start getting belligerent around 9.30, 10 o'clock. 
So the, the Jitney is going to be around the corner, and they're going to take us to the Atlantic City Beer Hall, which is on Tennessee Avenue. Tennessee Avenue is as sketchy as it gets, and they're trying to gentrify it with you establishments. So we're going to go to the Beer Hall, and they got about 75 beers on tap. They got really, really good food. Um, so I think that's how we're going to end. We're going to end Friday night that way. Um, we're going to go back to the crib. We're going to get a good night's sleep. And then I'm getting everybody up. And Jitney comes back, and we're going to go to Uncle Bill's Pancake House for breakfast. You guys probably know that. Oh, yeah. I'm spending your time here. Now, the deal with Uncle Bill's is I don't ever, ever go there with a big group without ordering appetizers. So I have, like, stuffed French toast, and I got all the sweet stuff coming. And then, you know, you get your omelets and your uh, pork roll, egg and cheese sandwiches and whatnot. And that's how we're going to start our Saturday. So then we're going to we're going to go from there. We're going to go to the 25th Street Beach, and we're going to play wiffle ball. Um, the great thing about wiffle ball is you got to make sure that Caridio is part of this group because he is the worst athlete you've ever seen in your life when it comes to everything else but basketball. He couldn't hit a ball in the ass with a snow shovel. Never mind a wiffle ball in a in a light breeze. <laughs> So you'll feel you'll feel like Sandy Koufax every time you're pitching the Caridia. You're gonna feel like a million bucks. And so we're gonna sit sit on the uh, Ocean City Beach. We're gonna order bowl tacos. We're gonna go pick up um, the best Italian hoagie um, at the Jersey Shore, and that's how we're gonna spend our Saturday. About five thirty, six o'clock, the Jitney comes back, and we are going to Twisties in Strathmere, and we're gonna sit on the water at Twisties. Um, it's an establishment that used to be open only two weeks a year and uh, they got new owners and they've, they've opened it. And uh, it's just a great spot. You'll find John Gallagher from Hartford there. You'll find, you know, you know, you all, all kind of coaches will roam in and out. In fact, I, you know, the timing's not great for this, but um, Kobe Bryant's high school coach, I met there uh, with John McCarthy, who was the head of the small college basketball association. So John and I were meeting there for drinks, and uh, he had uh, Kobe's coach meetings as well. And some of the stories about Kobe in high school were unbelievable, and a lot of them were certainly brought back to memory just just because of you know the week we're going through with that. Um, so anyway, we're going to go to Twisties. I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer in the middle of this great segment, but so we're, we're going we're going from Twisties. We're getting back into the Jitney and we're going to go back. We're going to go back to Atlantic city and we're going to go to the beer garden on the Atlantic city boardwalk and another place with 75, 80 beers. Um, there's no better people watching than sitting at the beer garden because it's about a block and a half from the Tropicana. And, uh, we're going to do that till about eight thirty, nine o'clock. And then we're going to make our way to cafe 2825 where they have these homemade mozzarella balls that are the size of watermelons and they just melt in your mouth. Yeah, baby. And uh, that, that, that's going to be our Saturday night meal. So you have, you know, if you're in Atlantic city, cafe 2825 and Stephen cookies have to be your go-tos when it comes to dinner. Um, I, I'd say uncle Bill's uh, is your breakfast spot. And, uh, you know, I mean, Atlantic City has got 150, 200 bars, and you can't go wrong in any of them. Oh, man, that was, that was epic. So, so 
No, the one thing I did mention is you have to sign a non-disclosure at the beginning of this weekend because these guys are going to have so much fun that I don't want none of them are allowed to steal my job because I don't want any of the competition wanting to come live at the Jersey Shore and coach his stuff. <laughs> yeah, we'll do that. We'll we'll draw up the non-disclosure. We'll make sure everyone signs it. No videos, no phones. We'll get it. It'll be old school, completely old school, and it'll be a great time. But that that was an epic city review, Tyler. I don't think you can do much better than that. No, I mean I, the best part about it was there was an itinerary. Like most people, were like yeah, we're gonna go here, we're gonna go. We had time. Yeah. we know exactly That's when we to need. get in. The, here, here's the problem with that weekend for me. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up one problem, and it's just probably me. After we sit on the beach all day. There's no way that I'm going to be able to risk – I'm going to be able to go near a casino. And you guys are going to be 15 minutes from the trap. I'm just going to walk into the trap and just make sure that I'm in there gambling the whole time. I'm going to have to really probably leave my wallet at home, maybe just bring a credit card or something, no bank card, because I can't get that close to casinos and not go in. And so if we're going to be spending that much time in AC, I got to make sure that I got some checks and balances in place to make sure that I come back with some money in my pocket. Because otherwise, I mean, I'm just – I'll make the jitney drive me to Borgata when you guys are at the beer hall. I, I mean, that's my usual game. <laughs> it's funny you say that. So, I mean, being in the bar business and being from Atlantic City, I mean, gambling was a big part of my life, you know, for about 10, for about 10 years. And I, I had a night in Atlantic City where, I mean, the amount of money I lost on this one hand of blackjack has, has made me never gamble again. I, you talk about scare, scared straight. I was scared straight. I had a 19 and a 20. I mean, I, I had two splits and double downs and this and that. And the amount of money was atrocious. And the dealer card, a, a seven card 21. And I, I just flipped off the videos on the way out of the casino. And I haven't been back since. <laughs> I mean, that's beautiful. Like, you just got scared straight. You lose the money and then you, you kick the... I mean, people say it's a bad habit. I, I'm not one of the people that thinks that way. But it's just... I, I mean, we've all seen somebody do that before where, you know, you double down, then you got to split on the, you know, you split, you double one of them. And all of a sudden, you know, you tripled your bet and you're like, well, this got out of hand real quick. But the thing is, if you're a real gambler, like Smalls, I've seen Smalls do this before too, but like, you got to do it. You, you know, you get that 11. If you don't double down, you're never going to forgive yourself when you make 21. So you got to double down every time it happens. It's just you got, you, you have to if you ever get a chance to talk to Crudio, you gotta ask him what happened to his money on my bachelor party. So basically the jitney and all that. So Crudio was in charge of the jitney, he was in charge of collecting money. So he had a hundred dollars from twenty different guys. Well he lost it in the Tropicana that night. So he ended up forking it over for everything. So so yeah, I mean, I I feel your pain, and that that, that 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 maybe we have to go south, and we'll go to Avalon, and I I can give you some great establishments down there as well. Um, I uh, Smalls is like the mayor of Avalon. The first time I ever went out there, we we go to I think where we go, Smalls, Princeton or Whitebriar. What was oh, the first place? When we, I was younger, I was much much more. We there. we we walk in, you know, we Vander slices hook it up. We pay for a limo to go there for some reason. Like we were real big shots at like twenty three years old. We walk into, I think it was Whitebriar, and like 27 people run up to Smalls, and they're like, Cringe, what's going on, buddy? And the guy was like getting drinks bought for him, and I was like, man, this guy's like the mayor of Whitebriar. This is this is unbelievable. We've got to come to Avalon more often. Smalls has real juice. There. Reestablished in Sea Isle, though, and then the OD, and I, did, I made my way through Sea Isle. It worked out. It worked out. A good good run in my 20s. <laughs> <laughs> 
the White Briar and the Prince, the White Briar and the Princeton kept me single till I was forty. Yeah, you clean them. All right, let's go. Let's go to ten touches before anybody gets in trouble. We're all we're all getting close to there. So ten touches, you know the drill. Thirty second rapid fire question and answer. Uh, who's the funniest person you've ever worked with or coached? Uh, Jerry Matthews, not even close. Uh, you know, I, I, I just had so much fun with him. Him and I would just break balls the entire day. And, uh, you know, his sense of humor, um, it's probably one of the things that made him a great coach is he was really, really hard on guys. But the minute practice was over, but how funny he was and loving he was. And, and um, you know, I try to be the same way in a way, but he's by far the funniest guy I've worked with. What's your what's your worst basketball travel experience? Uh, I mean, it, it could be a number of things. I mean, one year we were supposed to go to York at PA, and the bus driver was taking us to York and New York, um, and uh, and we show up at York at PA like fifteen seconds before the buzzer goes off. We're playing Wisconsin Stevens Point, who was number one in the country, and uh, needless to say, the first half did not go well. Um, that, that, that was a bad one, but it's not the worst. The worst was we're at wheeling every trip because our bus driver kept a cooler right by his chair of, uh, you know, he had a six pack of Budweiser for every trip and you'd get some snow in the mountains of West Virginia. We're, we're like going over these cliffs and he's got like a beer in one hand and he's steering in the other. Like, like some of the stuff that happened in West Virginia, it just, just it defies description. But, um, you know, and <laughs> so, so, so that, I mean, it, I mean, that, that was pretty bad. So that's as bad as it's gotten for me. Uh, if you get a chance, you know, you're out on the boardwalk a lot, you got kids. I'm sure you don't get to watch, watch a lot of TV, but, uh, what's the last TV show you binge watched? Um, you know, with my kids, I'm watching a lot of really, really bad YouTube, um, you know, these, uh, reality shows on YouTube. I mean, these families are making millions of dollars. And I mean, it's, the value is not there. Um, what am I watching? Like I'll try to watch or something, but I, I fall asleep within 15, 20 minutes, um, of getting in bed. So I'm not really watching anything. Uh, okay. Let's say you decide you want to get out of the restaurant business, but you don't go into coaching. What do you think you'd be doing? Um, I would be in real estate. Um, when I was in my twenties, I bought and sold a lot of properties. Um, I had 39 units at one point in Philadelphia and down the shore. So I, I'd probably just stuck with that and, and just been a slumlord for the next 50 years. <laughs> I actually said that to somebody today, that that was, uh, something that we should look into, but it's harder to do now. Uh, what's, who's the best player you've ever faced or game planned for? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, when I was in Houston one year, um, we we played against um, Camden High had Nate Johnson. Nate Nate ended up going to Louisville. He was a great player. Um, Division three is different. Like it's not players as much as systems. Um, I know you had Hopkins and Goldsmith on. We played against them um, in the Sweet Sixteen one year, and they had a great point guard, uh, Andrew Olson. And um, but it, it was still like the team. You, you're more game planning for whole teams in Division Three. Um, Farmingdale had a kid that got drafted by the Knicks seven or eight years ago, but we tuned them up pretty good, so he wasn't that bad. Um, uh, Olsen's probably the guy that had, like, 
you know, with Amherst was beating us really good that year. And then we came back and I think we cut it to like five or six and he buried about two or three 30 footers um, to kind of seal the game for them. Um, so he might've been the best college player. And I think he was a two time player of the year. Um, he might've been the best player I've coached against at our level. If you could change one thing about college basketball, what would it be? Uh, I don't have one. I mean, I got a, I mean, I got a list. How long do you have? <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, number one, I, I, how do you not have, give us any time with the kids in the off season? Like the, is the NCA, does the NCA, are, the, are none of those people parents? Because everybody that's a parent realizes that a busy kid is a good kid. And a kid that's bored and doesn't have any activities gets in trouble. So I, I don't get it how you don't have any time to spend, you know, two hours a week or whatever it is. I don't care if they move the start of the season back a week, if they give you two weeks leading up to it. So that would be one. Number two, I'd like to go to the course. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I just think it would be great to, to, and it would add a lot of coaching. And, you know, for, for those of us that are trying to keep it simple, at least it would give us a reason to, to put in all these silly plays like that we, we like to do. I just love it for the fouls too. I, the one-on-one situation, if you get refs that are foul happy and you're in the one-on-one or two shots with 13 minutes left in the second half, it, it number one, it kills the flow of a game. And number two, it can make a lesser team or, you know, be in a game because there can just be so many fouls and go whichever way. I love that quarters can almost eliminate that, just shortening 10 minutes. You barely get into one-on-one. At least I see it in the girls' games right now. There's not too many foul situations. The pace is way better, and I think that would go a lot better for the men's side. So I'm totally with you on that. What's your, what's your, be, what's your best moment as a coach? Uh, you know, I, I think the fact that I, I was out for 10 years and I really, really had a I was in a brutal industry. I, I, I think every day is the best. Like I pinch myself every single day I wake up and I'm doing what I love for a living. I, have I had one great moment? I, I guess going to the final four yet that year would be like one unbelievable moment. And um, I'm hoping my best moments are still ahead of me. But to be honest with you, I, I, I pinch myself. And um, I think the most valuable thing you can have as a person is um, a great appreciation and, uh, and that I, that's what I have. I have an unbelievable appreciation that I get to do what I love for a living. What's your pregame routine? Uh, workout and coffee. There you go. What's your favorite and least favorite practice drill? Uh, my least favorite practice drill would be anything to do with a scouting report. Um, my guys don't know my plays. How am I going to teach them somebody else's plays in 15 minutes? It ain't happening. And, you know, so I think it's an unbelievable waste of time. Um, what we've done, and like I said, we're third in the country in field goal percentage defense. And if I spend 15 minutes on the other team, it would be considered a lot. Um, we, 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 we have breakdown drills for, every, you know, so we scout actions. And every time we see an action, we, we have breakdown drills. We do seven or eight minutes uh, in every practice. Um, I have a great staff when it comes to a lot of those things. My one assistant. Um, his name is Andy Allison and he was in Memphis with Cal Perry. And then he went to UMass with Kellogg's 
And uh, when they got fired at UMass, his wife was an executive in Atlantic City. He moved here, and uh, he just started coming to practice, and then eventually he just kind of started helping me. And he's got these drills that, you know, in fact, we went to see Kentucky play uh, earlier in the year. We went to a, a shoot-around, and they do the, all these breakdown drills, and they don't really talk about their opponent too much either. And that's kind of where we are. So we, scouting reports is my least favorite. Uh, my most favorite would be anything that involves a lot of conflict. I try to have a lot of conflict every practice with our guys because I want to see how they handle it. I want um, I don't want guys to be passive aggressive. I want guys to, to challenge each other, and and you know I don't mind guys squaring off every once in a while in practice. I mean I think it's healthy. So anything that involves conflict and competition is my favorite. Love it. What's your best bar or barbecue type of game? I, if I'm with Carrillo, I want to play wiffle ball because I still feel like I can play for the Phillies. So that would be one. But let's we'll talk. I when I was in a bar business, I was kind of a pool shark, and it was fun. It was well, it was funny because I wasn't a very good pool player, but I talked so much junk that I would throw everybody off their game. And like I had customers that were like, you know, I, I was winning. Uh, I won like a Jeep CJ7 one day. Like it was. You know, I mean, I, the, the things I won playing pool for a guy that wasn't any good, um, you know, it is unbelievable. Awesome. Two podcast guests we need to have on. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I could say Critio and Billy Lang would be a great duo. We would just roast each other, the three of us. The problem is Billy's only cool two weeks a year, so it would have to be in those two weeks. Um, they, they, would, they, would be, they would be two good ones. Uh, but let me give you two others. Danny Sancombe at Cal PA would be an awesome one. Um, he's going to have a chance to compete nationally there. He got railroaded at Wheeling Jesuit because, you know, the Catholic Church decided they were going to take all the money and go on lavish trips. So uh, Danny would be a great one. His story is great and handling the adversity there. And Tobin Anderson's a good friend of mine. And I don't know if there's anybody in the country that does a better job with less resources. I mean, the the gym that guy has to play in is not as good as my grammar school gym. <laughs> and what he does there is just unbelievable. They pack it in. They get a good crowd. And, yeah, he's done amazing things there. Obviously, you know, nationally ranked and an opportunity to host the region this year for him. But, uh, yeah, no, totally. That was great 10 touches. Uh, last segment, same two questions every guest, parting shots. Scott, what's the best advice you've ever been given? The best advice I ever was given, and this lady has been mentioned on your show by Steph uh, Gately. Uh, it was her high school coach, Pat Doherty. And I can remember being in seventh grade and sitting at a basketball camp. And she said that, you know, if you're not out there playing and practicing and working your tail off, somebody else is. And when you two meet, that person's going to be better. And I, you know, I took that in my playing career, but that's also kind of my recruiting philosophy is, I always think that, you know, there's teams in our league or whatever that are going after kids and I'm not going to let them outwork me for certain guys. So that's probably the best advice I ever got. Face to face with your 25 year old self. What are you telling that person? You know, I, I, I would probably tell them if your family has a business, go work somewhere else first. Um, my situation was different. Because, you know, I was doing my dad a favor and I, yeah, I was just trying to give him a better life. But in general, I think that it, 
a family business kind of becomes a crutch. And I think you need to go outside and, and work for yourself and, and go on job interviews and, and really try to grind. And then if you want to come back and work in a family business, um, then do it. But that would probably be a, the advice I would give myself. Um, coaching wise, I would just say, you know, like I, I worked 10 years for basically nothing. Um, I was basically a volunteer for 10 years. I don't know if I work any harder now than I did in those 10 years. I mean, I grinded as if I was making 200 K a year. And, um, and, and I, I, you know, I mean, I went through a ton of money in those 10 years, just trying to, just trying to live my dream. Um, so if you really want something, stick with it and, and you know, there's no sacrifice too big. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's really good advice. The family business thing is interesting too, just because I, I do think like a lot of people are just like, oh, you know, family business, like I'm just going to go into it. And it, you know, you're exactly right. Like your situation was different, but it doesn't necessarily mean it was the best decision to make. So I want everybody to know if you want to get these types of stories, uh, you can follow them on Twitter at Scott A. Bittner, B-I-T-T-N-E-R. Shoot him a follow. I don't know if he gets quite as in the weeds on Twitter as he does here, but good stuff, Scott. I mean, we appreciate it. Like I said, it's always fun getting somebody on who kind of knows what we're about and knows a lot of the same people and just kind of vibes with us because it, it makes the show, you know, a lot of advice. But, uh, you know, one of Smalls' things is we always want to show that coaches have a different side to them. Like there, there is somebody there when they're not between the lines. And I think that you know, it's fun to have a guy like you on the show to, to kind of get some of that personality out that people may not see when they're coaching against you or watching you coach. So I appreciate you coming on and being super honest with us and kind of, you know, taking us through your career because it was a lot of fun for us. I appreciate you having me on. And, you know, hopefully we can hang out in Atlanta a little bit and uh, play some bar Let's games. I mean, we'll be back. We'll, I mean, if not Atlanta, we'll both be down the shore at some point this summer, I'm, I'm quite sure. So we'll, we'll make something happen. Maybe not quite as extravagant as the whole weekend, but definitely uh, we'll make something happen. All right? Sounds good, guys. Thanks so Thanks, much. Scott. All right, we'll talk soon.